0: And thanks for listening.
1: Is California still the climate leader it claims to be? Climate One conversations feature oil companies and environmentalists, Republicans and Democrats, the exciting and the scary aspects of the climate challenge. I'm Greg Dalton. California has been at the forefront of America's climate fight since Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger signed the country's first major climate law in 2006.
2: When we sign this bill, we will begin a bold new era of environmental protection here in California that will change the
3: course of history.
1: His successor, Jerry Brown, built on that legacy and advanced the decoupling of economic growth and carbon emissions. But most of the low-hanging fruit has been picked, and current Governor Gavin Newsom, who took office in January 2019, now has to realize harder emission reductions while the state grapples with climate-related impacts.
3: If you look at the budget, our entire infrastructure plan is framed in terms of climate resilience.
1: Kate Gordon is climate advisor to Governor Newsom and director of his Office of Planning and Research. She previously worked on climate policy for Tom Steyer, Hank Paulson, and Michael Bloomberg. She points to housing and transportation as areas of priority for the administration, as they also deal with the effects of increasingly destructive wildfires.
0: California saw a five fold increase in area burned uh, since the 1970s.
1: Rachel Becker is an environmental reporter with Cal Matters and a former science writer for The Verge. In 2017, the state got more than half of its electricity from renewable sources. Yet Californians are driving more miles and tailpipe emissions are rising.
4: We need a rebirth. We need a renaissance. Noel Perry
1: is the founder of NEXT10, which each year presents the California Green Innovation Index, detailing the state's progress on technology, jobs, policy and more. He's a former vice chair of the Board of Conservation International, as well as a donor to Climate One. I began our conversation by asking him why his organization, which has been a cheerleader of California's move to clean energy, is now sounding the alarm bell with its most recent report.
4: Because we looked at the numbers and the numbers weren't good. Specifically, what we looked at was that the state had reduced its uh, emissions by about 1.15 percent And then we looked at what we needed to do to get to our 2030 goals, uh, which requires a four and a half percent reduction per year. And for the first time, uh, this was our 11th index, where we have been pretty much a cheerleader for the tremendous progress that California has made. But the numbers really forced us to step back and highlight this, because particularly within the transportation area, the numbers look Particularly bad. So that's what uh, perspective was
1: so Kate Gordon. What's that like to have? Uh, an organization that's generally saying yes, we're going in the right direction Things are going pretty good to sort of say whoa not so good now or, or you know, you they need to go faster
3: Yeah, I mean it was a it was a great report and I recommend it to everybody. It wasn't a, a shock I mean when when I first started in my job actually almost exactly a year ago a year ago yesterday um Governor Newsom, who is very, very data driven, the first thing I did for him was to look at all of our goals and to do an analysis of where we are on meeting them all. And so we weren't surprised. Um, You know, the, the reality in California and in lots of places in the world, actually, is that Many of the things we've done, we've done incredibly well. So California met its 2020 goals four years early to get to 1990 levels. We now have 2030 goals. We did enormously well, as your report points out, on electricity in particular. So renewables, efficiency um, on electric vehicles we're ramping up. The things where you can keep doing what you were already doing, but with a different technology, we're doing really well on. Right. So you plug the thing in and what's behind the plug is different. You drive your car the same amount, but what you're driving is different. Where we are now and what we see from the Air Resources Board data is that our transportation emissions, for instance, which are going up about 6% a year, most of that or much of that is because of how much people are driving. And a lot of that is because of housing affordability. So we have this this connection between affordability and lack of affordability, people moving further and further and further out, commute times getting longer, um, inability to access transit in many of these new communities. And that's a very, very tough problem. That's a land use problem more than it is a technology problem. And that's something that we're spending a lot of time on.
1: And we'll spend more time on, on that later. Uh, Rachel Becker, what was sort of the most notable part of the, there's a couple of reports that have come out recently saying California's been doing great, needs to do, go faster, work harder.
0: Yes, yeah, certainly the the transportation aspect in Knoll's report. Uh, transportation is responsible for about forty percent of California's greenhouse gas emissions, and in recent years, it's been climbing. Uh, and even as transportation emissions climb, there's really very little sign that that California is going to be able to get people out of their cars and driving fewer miles. And As this whole transportation uh, emissions, as they continue to climb, now the Trump administration is saying to California, hey, your big tools for cleaning up cars, for requiring zero emission uh, vehicle sales in the state, and for policing greenhouse gases and tailpipe pollution, we're going to take those away.
1: So, Rachel Becker, can the feds really rain on California's parade? Can they really, you know, how, how badly, how much could they hurt California? Yes, <laughs> I mean,
0: that's going to be figured out in court. But right now, they, the feds have taken away California's power to police tailpipe pollution, greenhouse gases and tailpipe pollution, and, and run the zero v- emission vehicles program, which requires uh, car makers to sell clean cars in the state. So California has filed two lawsuits against the feds. Uh, California has also taken aim at car makers that have sided with the feds. Uh, Uh, but this is really, this is going to be fought in court. It's a fight that may last beyond the next presidential election.
1: Kate Gordon, California has a very good record in court uh, fighting oil companies, fighting the federal government. Uh, You know, it has a very good batting average, but are you concerned that uh, Trump could still really whack California and make it hurt?
3: Yeah. I mean, this is a incredibly challenging for us i think we have over 60 active uh cases right now with between california and the federal government it's very very challenging because you know this is what our a- attorney general's office is doing 100 percent of the time there's things that they're not doing because they're doing this right um and some of them are really worrying there's a recent case that um that the federal government filed against us for our cap and trade agreement with quebec arguing that we are not a country and so we can't enter into a treaty so that has big implications, that case, because if we can't do a subnational state to state, state to region agreements around carbon pricing, we're wholly dependent on the federal government to be, you know, expanding our carbon pricing regime, which is very scary to think about. Um, so we're we're really paying a lot of attention to it. It's I think we have a great track record and we will win many of them. But anyone who's ever you know, practiced law, as I have at a small firm uh, and is going up against a big behemoth, you just spend a lot of time. I mean, it's it's an incredible time sink. And capacity right. sink
1: for the state. Right, and, and creates uncertainty and, and uh, slows, slows yep. you down. California's climate leadership started in 2006 when Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger enacted the country's first economy wide plan for cutting carbon emissions. We asked Julie Cart, a reporter at Cal Matters and Rachel Becker's colleague, to revisit the pivotal moments of that landmark law known as Assembly Bill 32 or AB 32. <laughs>
2: 2006 was a period of time when California staked out its bona fides as being a state, an entity that was going to respond to climate change because so many of the impacts of climate change, even though they had seemed so far off, were actually hitting California with drought, wildfire. Stop me when this sounds familiar with where we are today. But it was a time to respond. And AB 32, which was what the law, it, it set a deadline to reduce greenhouse gas levels to 1990 levels. So the goals that were set at the time under and signed into law by Arnold Schwarzenegger were sort of breathtakingly strict and can we ever achieve them? Prop 23 uh, that was on the ballot in 2010 became a way for the fossil fuel industry to make its case about what it saw as burdensome regulations, regulations that would eventually cost taxpayers, put people out of work, et cetera, and said, let's, let's calmly rethink this. Some people think that it was a bit of an overplayed hand with that proposition and Californians uh, responded by defeating it. Jerry Brown took over from Schwarzenegger and said, we're going to run with this and was very, very proud for his two terms to go around the world and represent the state as a progressive, thoughtful leader in climate change. Jerry Brown's legacy really has to be the cap and trade program that was put in place and began in 2013. And the most important thing is it's created this slush fund, $6 billion of greenhouse gas reduction fund money that companies are paying into this system and that is the device that's the driver that is supposed to fund the many many very expensive projects that have some nexus with greenhouse gas reductions as he was leaving jerry brown signed into law the extension of the original global warming act and it wasn't simple jerry brown was adding lots of other notions including carbon neutrality, it was very clear that the governor wanted this passed, and so compromises were made, and that's how things get done. So uh, some people think the oil and gas industry got off lightly. Gavin Newsom, on the one hand, has a public history of great interest in climate change. The pivot now is that Newsom will preside over a time when the state has to do very, very difficult things to meet the goals that were set way back in 2006. The easy stuff has been done. The ratcheting up or the turning the screw on industry is going to fall to Newsom, and that's going to be politically very, very difficult.
1: That was Julie Cart, a Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter. Now with Cal Matters, No Perry, you're an investor in, in Silicon Valley. What do you think about the the? the ending point there about now comes the hard part with the conflict between business and really aggressively decarbonizing the economy.
4: I think that uh, we're at a very important point here in California because we need to double down. We need a rebirth. We need a renaissance. The success that California experienced over the last 30 or 40 years was because of the symbiotic relationship where you had investors and you had the the government creating certain policies and the VCs and business people would try to would ratchet it up to try to fulfill that policy money would be made. But I think we're at a very critical point right now. And we need to I think it's a situation where it's all hands on deck. I think the governor, the legislature, Business, counties, cities, we all need to roll up our sleeves right now because we're, right now we're not getting it done, And but we can get it done. We have to find the will to do it. The technology is there, and we've got to act now.
1: Rachel Becker, your thoughts on whether, you know, Gavin Newsom is going whether his ambition is, is meeting the level of, of, the, of the challenge there, what we're facing right now.
0: It's certainly going to be, politically difficult. Um, he During his campaign, he, he called for, for example, uh, zero diesel, po- diesel pollution by 2030. Um, he called for a, a climate incubator. You know, we're seeing some moves on the climate incubator in his latest budget ask. But there's a lot to do, according to another recent report that came out from Energy Innovation that was more optimistic than Noel's uh, Next 10 report, but also said that California is unlikely to meet its 2030 climate goals and um, energy innovation recommended a suite of climate policies, you know, taking aim at uh, the cement industry, um, making cap and trade more stringent uh, and variable with the distance that we get from our 2030 climate goals, uh, putting more electric vehicles on the road. And all of these are they're tough asks.
1: Kate Gordon, uh, recently uh, 350.org uh, sent out an email, you know, targeted at Governor Newsom, asked for three things. Stop new oil drilling in California. There's some reports that there have been more permits for new drilling in under the Newsom administration than uh, previously. Help workers transition from fossil fuels to clean energy jobs and impose a health and safety buffer of 2,500 feet between any fracked well and homes and schools. What do you think about those three asks?
3: I mean, Governor Newsom is very cognizant of this issue. We have uh, we're not uh, in the top three anymore, but we are an oil and gas producing state. Um, Important, I think, to start with the facts, which is that we, as you heard, our demand for oil is going up every year in the state. We use 100 percent of what we produce in state. We don't export any of it. And it's 37 percent of what we consume. So the rest of what we consume is coming from Saudi Arabia and Ecuador. That's just important to know. It doesn't mean we don't act, but it's important to know that reality, that that demand supply relationship, we have to go very far down on the demand side before we hit that piece of our supply. But more important, I mean, the governor has been actually pretty proactive, more so than Governor Brown, on on this issue. He's stopped um, fracking. He stopped high injection steam fracking, which is what was causing some of the the kind of surface expressions or the bubbling up of oil in Kern County. Uh, We have a a moratorium on new permits for fracking in general as we're doing a big health and safety review. We've already pushed back on the federal government on some of the expansion. Again, an issue where the federal government is pushing now back on us um, for doing that. Um, and we're having a very very serious conversation uh, with uh, you may have read with folks in Bakersfield and Kern County in particular our largest oil producing county about what how to diversify that economy. So within California, California is a really diversified economy as a state. But Kern County is not a very diversified economy. The economy is very, very oil and agriculture dependent. And so it's a resource based economy up and down with commodity prices. Uh, it's a tough, tough thing to think about. How do you take those existing skills, the existing assets in that county, and really start thinking strategically with folks on the ground about what the future looks like that's more diversified and more stable and more sustainable? And we're starting that conversation now. It's not. Easy at all, but it is um, absolutely necessary.
1: You're listening to a Climate One conversation about California's story as a climate leader. Coming up, we'll ask about the impact of more frequent and more intense wildfires on the state's climate plan.
0: One question I have is politically, what it would do to count California's wildfire emissions towards its 2030 climate goals? Would that sap motivation for uh, cuts across the rest of the economy?
1: That's up next, when Climate One continues.
2: Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas
3: that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? we look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow Ted Climate wherever you're listening
1: to this. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton, and we're talking about California's climate progress with Noel Perry, founder of Next10, which publishes the California Green Innovation Index, Rachel Becker, environmental reporter with CalMatters, and Kate Gordon, climate advisor to California Governor Gavin Newsom. Kate explains how the Newsom administration's approach to funding its climate initiatives differs from its predecessors. Traditionally, the
3: Greenhouse Gas Reduction Fund or the fund created by carbon Trade has been the place in the budget where we've done climate work. It's been sort of the one place, which is exciting because we've got this money coming from the auction, billions of dollars, yeah. one thing, um, and uh, many pieces of it are already appropriated through continuous appropriations and through legislative acts. What we did this year was to essentially take a step back and have exactly the conversation we're having here, and to say we got to get beyond that as our one part of the climate budget. And this year, what the governors proposed is a 12.6 billion dollar climate budget that goes across GDRF, the Greenhouse Gas Reduction Fund, but actually adds. Two big new pieces, a general obligation bond on climate resilience, which we which didn't talk about much. And the reports don't talk about much. You talk about it a little bit. But we have to actually think about that as part of the climate conversation much more than we did, frankly, when Governor Schwarzenegger and even Governor Brown We're doing these policies. We have a a state where the governor's first week we had the PG&E bankruptcy and then the ratings agencies downgrading the three utilities. Wildfires are top of mind for everybody. Um, And we have to be thinking about both how do we protect our state and our most vulnerable communities, as well as moving to carbon neutrality. So we have the climate, the resilience bond, which is directly focused on natural infrastructure investments that will reduce our risks from things like wildfire, flood, extreme heat and sea level rise. And then we've added, as you were saying, a new uh, proposed climate catalyst fund, which is actually intended to really de-risk some of these investments, spur the private market to do way more than we've been asking in the past to get to scale on exactly these things that are already out there. They're commercial. They've been proven. But for various reasons, including the stock market crash in 2010, a lot of private investors think that they're too risky. And so really what the intent is here is to say we got to go way bigger than we've gone in the past and stop thinking of this as an environmental issue over here and start thinking of it as a budget wide issue that all of us have to get behind.
1: Uh, Rachel Becker, what impact is the fire Is fires are fires undoing California's progress?
0: It's a. Difficult question to answer. Um, So Noel's report uh, from over the summer said that wildfire emissions were outstripping greenhouse gas cuts across the economy by nine times. Um, The California Air Resources Board, so California's climate enforcers, said that that's not really a fair comparison because forests are part of the natural carbon cycle, whereas oil, humans bring that up out of the ground to burn it. The caveat, though, is that humans are worsening wildfires. Uh, California saw a five-fold increase in area burned uh, since the 1970s, and that's been in large part because climate change has been warming up the fuels and making them crispier and really priming the West to burn. On top of that, humans are responsible for 84% of the ignitions across the U.S., according to a study that came out a few years ago. So while wildfires are part of the natural carbon cycle, humans are certainly making them worse. So one question I have is, Politically, what it would do to count California's wildfire emissions towards its 2030 climate goals Would that SAP motivation for uh, cuts across the west of uh, rest of the economy, Director Gordon?
3: <laughs> it's the reporters; they just have to ask questions, right? Love it.
1: I'm just gonna sit back and. watch. I mean, this. taking
3: I I I take you a step back on this because I think your 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 point is an important one about kind of human contribution to to the fires. The thing I I have to bring everything back to land use because I'm a planner and that's what we do. But it's also a really important issue in California. We have 11 million people living in what we call the wildland urban interface, which is a kind of a squishy definition, but basically overlaps pretty much with the Cal Fire definition of high fire risk areas of the state. Just in context, all of southern Australia, which is obviously having a terrible fire experience right now, has about a million people. So we have 11 million people in these areas. Uh, some of that, again, is due to people moving further and further and further and further out from the cities. When we, and this is why I, I don't buy the electric vehicles or the answer to this entire problem, when we convert an acre of land from agriculture or conservation uses or forest uses to urban uses, a number of things happen. One, you get a 50 to 70 times increase in carbon emissions by doing that. Two, people start driving more because there's more cheap, housing further away from cities three. And importantly, we lose fire breaks. So if you look at the most recent fire that didn't hit St. Helena up in um, north of here, vineyards acted as fire breaks for that fire. Uh, orchards acted as fire breaks for the Santa Rosa fire that we had a couple of years ago. We are making decisions when we do these land use changes that are almost they're very hard to reverse, and they are, in fact, exacerbating this problem. Because the more structures we have and people and power lines in all of these parts of the state that used to naturally burn and burn out, the more we have those things, the bigger the fires, the more destructive. So we really, really do need to take an integrated approach to this. It's why we put a billion dollars into fire management in the budget um, and why we're doing the climate resilience bond. You have to take an integrated approach to this that looks at the land use side while you're investing in the technology side and thinking about what kinds of technologies and vehicles and, and transportation options people have. It's its critically important not to leave that over on the side or leave it out. It's a huge part of the puzzle.
1: And a, also part of that is housing density. Kate Gordon, Seattle banned single yep. family housing. Yep. Oregon has a statewide planning. What, what can, let's talk about other states and who's doing this well, you know, getting infill, density, yep. transit, all those, who's doing it, putting the pieces together well? There's
3: actually two cities that have reduced, only two in the United States, that have reduced their vehicle miles traveled, which is sort of the metric for how much people drive um, in the last. 10 years, and that's Minneapolis and Seattle, um, both of which banned single family zoning actually. Oregon is interesting because it's the only state that can do that at a statewide level. And the reason for that is because in the 70s, the farmers and ranchers in eastern Oregon organized and essentially changed the Constitution to allow for state level planning so that they could get things like urban growth boundaries. It's interesting to look at those dynamics. We do not have that. California's Constitution actually specifically gives um, control to local government over
1: planning. And do you think that solving climate is going to require more concentration of state power? Because we know that. Uh, community uh, meetings slow down and kill housing projects.
3: I think that we have to I mean, our job as the administration and as then the governor's job as the overseer of the state, not from a specific district, is to look at this from a statewide perspective. And at some level, you know how I think of it is actually how do we promote infill and how do we promote land conservation? They're two sides of the same coin. They both have multiple benefits from a climate perspective. What are the tools that we have at our disposal, like the infill infrastructure grant program, which helps cities build infrastructure so people can do infill housing? you know, strategically finding those tools where the state can make a difference is incredibly important. I think it's very unlikely we're going to get to a where Oregon is on state level planning.
1: We're talking about California's story as a climate leader. The state has made impressive reductions in its carbon emissions, but studies say it's not on track to meet its goals over the next decade. I'm Greg Dalton, and my guests are Kate Gordon, climate advisor to California Governor Gavin Newsom, Noel Perry, founder of Next 10, publisher of the California Green Innovation Index, and Rachel Becker, environmental reporter with Cal Matters. Uh, Noel Perry, give us the, what's the upside here? What's what's What are the bright spots? Uh, investment,
4: innovation, jobs? So, in <laughs> 2017, the state of California got the majority of our electricity from renewable resources as opposed to yeah. fossil that fuels. That was a crossover? Yeah, that was very first. important. Secondly, uh, in terms of other states across America, we have the second lowest carbon footprint per person or per unit of GDP? Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the one of the most important areas for the future of California is the ability to get more electric cars on the road. So positive thing, Uh, we have half the electric vehicles in America. I don't know what it is, like 400,000 or four. We have 700,000, 700,000. we need to do so much more in that area. I think from a policy from a state policy perspective and locally, we've got to come up with ways to uh, enhance the use of electric vehicles. Um, if you rent in California, it's very hard to charge a right. car. Yep. I, I think that that is rent a, anyway
1: in any state. It's hard to charge. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Or if you I, don't have a garage, also. I think
4: that's a huge issue. Yep. And if the state uh, can work on one issue, Uh, It's so much because it it, it relates to range anxiety, too. Mm -hmm. If you know you can go to work, come back, charge your car, get up Mm -hmm. and leave, as opposed to you're Mm -hmm. driving around looking for some place to charge it. But um, charging stations. huge huge
1: Huge priority. And so we have a story here in California where electricity, did a really good job. Most of California's reductions have been in the electricity sector. Most of the curves are going in the right direction in terms of uh, you know things are going down that we want to go down, but transportation is the thing that's going in, in, in the wrong direction. And uh, San Francisco did a study from 2010 to 2016 on the ride hailing services yeah. that were supposed to, if you remember, they were going to like, oh, they were going to put a dent. You don't need to own a car anymore and it was that uh, they're going to be part of the solution. Well, the study found that half of the hours of traffic delay were due to these ride-hailing Uber and Lyft. Um, half of the increase in vehicle miles traveled. Um, half of the reduction in, tr- in speed and travel times was because of these ride-hailing services. So this service that, that uh, was sold to us as like, oh, it will be, make life easier and, and also solve climate change too, is making all the stuff worse
3: yeah i mean it, it it's sort of how you use it right i mean if if we were to all do the shared rides whenever we call a lift or an uber which i bet we don't all do i don't always do it um it would be a, a slightly different story i mean this is an interesting i think thing to think about when we think about autonomous vehicles which many people have now started talking about as the solution to all problems um and you know the fix of all time and
1: Remember the paperless office? I mean, yes. <laughs>
3: it, 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 we look at the, what at, at Ubers and Lyfts, and you sort of see what happens when people have a chauffeur at their command, which is pretty similar to an autonomous car that you can call whenever you want. And what happens is that people take it, even if they're going less than a mile, instead of transit or instead of another option. It's a very um, – yeah. what it's done is reduced transit ridership significantly, which has been um, a real challenge actually across – The board in cities in California and I think what we need to be thinking about and it's some of this is in the state's power and some isn't but we need to be thinking about this collection of how do we get to like Dan Sperling from UC Davis always says sort of how do you get to shared electric and autonomous not just electric and autonomous you know how do you get to the shared piece to the piece that's about integration with transit systems because some of this stuff isn't accessible to people too. the folks that are taking the urban's and lifts are not the lowest income people in California
0: The the California Resources Board also came out with a recent study about uh, CO2 emissions from Uber and Lyft and found that they were producing 50 percent more grams of CO2 per passenger mile traveled. And the reason for that was even though the fleets were generally cleaner than kind of the broader California fleet, uh, these cars were driving around without passengers in them for more than a third of the Deadheading, time. Deadheading, they
1: call it. Exactly. Deadheading. Yeah. So, so, no, pair. that's an example of there's sort of this uh, and, uh, school of thought, which is tech, the techno optimist school, that technology will solve this, things that we, you know, solve this. And, and does the Uber and Lyft example, which is they're basically, they're valued as tech companies, right? Does that put a uh, dent in your confidence in the techno optimist argument?
4: I think, as I said, I think we have most of the we don't have all the technology, but the issue here in California, I think, is more one of will. Hmm. Uh, Although I think in the EV section, I think the two big things with EVs, there's cost and there's range, but really want to see the cost of EVs come down. You know, they're twelve to fifteen thousand dollars, you know, with the battery. Uh, But per car, yeah, (laughs) per car. But but I don't want people to think that we're never going to get there. We don't have the technology. It's a question of will right now. Will California will the leadership? Will we step up and do it? Because if not us, who and and we have to do this? You know, California is only one percent of total world emissions. So you might say, all right, well, whatever we do isn't going to have a major impact on the world, but We have been a leader in so many areas, uh, you know, in terms of cars and emissions and the waiver and other states adopting what we did and also in terms of energy efficiency, um, cap and trade, not so much. But we we need to we've been the leader. We need to regain that leadership because we need to be influential with the rest of the world because the rest of the world has been looking to us for a long time. Kate Gordon, you know, uh, when Donald Trump was
1: first elected, Jerry Brown was kind of the the face of climate advocacy, kind of like he was the the you know a- ambassador for climate on, on the yeah. world stage. I haven't yet seen Gavin Newsom walk into that role. Maybe it's the, the generational difference. Brown was obviously carrying this this strong and uh, political uh, legacy. You know, his father had been governor of California. You know, is, where where is Governor Newsom in terms of you know not that he can or should, but looking at that role as leading because. California is looked to internationally, particularly Absolutely. with the Trump administration destroying all the climate laws. Now, yep. the world looks to California.
3: And I would argue we are still leading. I wouldn't say regain the leadership. I think we have kept the leadership role. We're continuing to lead. We're leading in a broader range of things, to be honest. We're leading on climate resilience, which we have not done before. We're leading on you know, reducing climate risk. We're leading on. I uh, actually taking our own investments and in assets that we own as a state. We're a major investor and asset owner, and we're leading on aligning that with our climate goals, which had not happened before. I think what you see, I mean, Governor Brown in his first term spent most of his first term dealing with the budget.
1: Getting the economic house in order. He's he a-
3: did not allow his staff to travel. He Cut of People know who worked for him and he he's cut like, costs all over the place. Cheapskate. His second yeah. term when the budget started <laughs> looking better was when you started seeing this real outward looking leadership on climate change. And I think it's worth remembering that. And it's also worth remembering again that the first week of Gavin Newsom's term was and the, honestly the first nine months was characterized by wildfire and the PG&E bankruptcy, which is a very, very significant issue for him. So he's essentially got his crisis issue, um, that and homelessness. Uh, Our crisis issues for the state, they are where he is focusing. And to his credit, he's making both of them climate issues. If you look at the budget, our entire infrastructure plan is framed in terms of climate resilience. Um, His executive order in September is framed in terms of climate resilience on housing and transportation. It's a it's a different approach. It's where I think the world is going. It's certainly where the private sector is going. We're mainstreaming this across sectors, across regions. It's a macroeconomic issue like globalization, like automation. It is something everyone's going to have to be thinking about all the time. It's not one issue that you choose and you're out talking about. It's part of everything. It's a resource-based economy up and down with commodity prices. Uh, It's a tough, tough thing to think about. How do you take those existing skills, the existing assets in that county, and really start thinking strategically with folks on the ground about what the future looks like that's more diversified and more stable and more sustainable? And we're starting that conversation now. It's not easy at all but it is um, absolutely necessary.
1: You're listening to a conversation about California's climate leadership. This is Climate One. Coming up, how California and other states can learn from their past to ensure a more just transition from fossil fuels to clean energy. We've got some of the poorest counties in
3: the state up north and um You know, in some ways it's what happens when you don't do a just transition plan uh, and you don't think ahead about an industry decline and and what to replace it with. Um, We're kind of experiencing
1: that now. That's up next when Climate One continues. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. Climate One records many of our conversations with a live audience at our modern and green new home on the waterfront in San Francisco. When you're in town, I invite you to come join us. Our programs are open to the public and listed on climateone.org. We're talking about climate resilience in California with Kate Gordon, climate advisor to California Governor Gavin Newsom. Noel Perry, founder of Next10, publisher of the California Green Innovation Index. And Rachel Becker, environmental reporter with CalMatters. Bigger cars and more miles are a large reason California's transportation emissions are rising. But with much of America's trade with Asia passing through California ports, another big part is the freight and trucking industries, as Rachel explains.
0: Freight is responsible for about 8% of the greenhouse gas pollution in the state, but 25% of the diesel particulate pollution, which is just bad news. It causes, you know, kind of on the lighter side, it causes eye and throat and lung irritation and on the like life-threatening side, it can cause heart disease and lung disease and, and lung cancer. Uh, and this is especially problematic for folks who live along freight corridors and near ports. I talked to one mom in San Bernardino who is um, so proud of her two kids who are track and field stars, but she, when she watches their races, she has to hold their inhalers. and. Ever since they started toddling around, she had to take her firstborn from hospital to hospital to hospital to try and figure out why her baby couldn't breathe. So this is a the diesel particulate pollution is is a major public health problem for folks along freight corridors um, and. The California Air Resources Board, so California's uh, clean air and climate enforcers, are considering a rule right now that would require uh, truck makers to sell clean trucks in the state, much like car makers are required to sell clean vehicles in the state. Um, The rule is is controversial uh, because there are concerns about it from both sides the uh, local communities and, and environmental groups uh, think it's not tough enough um, the rule as it's written now would put about 75,000 uh, clean trucks on the road by 2030 which is only about four percent of uh, california's trucks and from the other side truck manufacturers are worried that if they are required to sell clean trucks in the state but no one is required to buy them yet then they'll be putting all of these trucks on the market going to all this expense and no one's going to buy them Uh, so the air resources board heard these concerns they're considering them Uh, there's going to be a new draft of the rule in in the spring um but i'm very curious where the administration stands on this given governor newsom's comments during his campaign that he you know that that diesel is a hat trick pollutant and has to go
3: yeah it's, it's a huge priority for us i mean putting uh significant funds into uh into a bunch of different pieces of it um into straight uh on the hood rebates for clean trucks and buses but uh also into engine replacement for ag and off-road vehicles which are a big contributor um, to diesel pollution Um, also uh, an enormous amount actually it's the largest chunk of the greenhouse gas reduction fund that's discretionary into um air monitoring and community engagement in areas that are most affected by pollution. So again, it's this tension where you have to deal with the impacts as well as dealing with the problem at the same time, right, in the budget. So we're, we're looking at it across a number of areas. There's no question freight is, is a is a naughty problem in the state. We have in the Inland Empire alone, 10% of all the nation's warehouses. And if you drive around, you start to see these warehouses uh, taking up more and more and more of what was agricultural land. And that's that's a pretty big deal. And that's because of the move to e-commerce, of course. So you see a hollowing out of the downtown retail, and then you see these gigantic warehouses. And Prologis, which is a big buyer of them, is buying millions, you know, tens of thousands or almost a million acres of land to do this. There's, there's enormous amount of speculation and development going on in the warehouses. And every time we do warehouse development, we're opening up new freight corridors. Um, so it's a, it's a really important issue. We need to think about Moving freight off the roads into rail would could we figure out a way for that to reduce emissions? We need to think about, you know, changing our buying patterns once again an incredibly hard thing that would require behavior change. But is this is what is driving this pattern? Um, And so it's 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 critically important. The last thing about freight that's important and I just learned like two days ago is that trucks are just significantly more have significantly more impact on our roads. So road repair, we just have to spend enormous amounts on road repair because of the truck increases in truck traffic. And that's true, actually, with electric, too. In fact, more true because they're heavier. If you do batteries instead of engines, they're heavier vehicles, and so there's more of a road impact. So these are just things we have to start thinking about.
1: Should uh, Kate Jordan, uh, there's a lot of talk. Uh, California increased the gasoline tax, uh, what, 17 cents? Uh, I've noticed there's a lot of road construction going on. That's fuel that people pay at the pump if they run on gasoline. Electric cars don't pay. don't pay that. Are they getting a free ride? And and how can electric cars, should they pay their fair share for the roads that they, they damage like everybody else?
3: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's certainly another big incentive for electric car ownership. I mean, I would put it in the category of a major incentive that the state provides to electric car um, owners and buyers. And I am an electric car. Um, I own a GM. I'm sorry. I have a Chevy Bolt. Um, it was before they did the letter. So. It's a great question, but I will say a lot of conversation is going on about this question about trucks in particular because trucks don't pay any more. I mean, they pay a little bit more because they have more gas, but they don't pay as much more as they should if it was proportionate. But there's the impact some, on the road repair cost. But
1: there's some pricing models for electric cars which involve pay per mile, and then yep. you, you know the the state. People are starting you know, to look at Everybody it. knows where the car is, like yep. you know Tesla, GM, yep. whatever. You know they know they could track your miles and sort yep. of pay per mile, which yep. would be the most fair thing to do. It's definitely something I know the California Transportation Commission is talking about it. Rachel Becker, uh, you know. 2008, we had a presidential campaign. John McCain, Barack Obama, both basically supported cap and trade. Cap and trade has been a key part of California's climate approach. It's been expanded to other countries and provinces. Mm -hmm. Does it work?
0: That's a big and difficult question to answer. Uh, Cap and trade uh, is, you know, a, a program that It aims to curb greenhouse gas pollution from major emitters, uh, you know, power plants, cement companies, uh, by issuing a limited number of permits to pollute. And so the idea is that it incentivizes low-cost upgrades to plants to reduce pollution, uh, or companies have to buy that dwindling number of permits that decreases over time um, and trade them among themselves. Uh, California's top policy wonks uh, at the Legislative Analyst's Office took a look at a suite of policies um, across the electricity sector to look at what policies were cutting emissions um, effectively and, and how much the, each of those policies were contributing to the cuts California seen um, in the electricity sector. And, they had a tough time figuring out the contributions of cap and trade, specifically in the electricity sector. But the issue um, that they ran into was figuring out what would have happened if there weren't a carbon price. Mm. So in the last, you know, 10 years, we've seen a recession. Um, natural gas has the price of natural gas has gone down. We've seen a shift away from coal and all of that is really tough to tease apart to figure out what exactly the contribution of cap and trade is.
1: Kate Gordon, I want to talk before we go to audience questions about some hard-to-get-at sectors, cement, yeah. shipping, aviation. These are things that, in the case of aviation and shipping, the assets move around, and you know, any one country is hard to get a, get a handle on them. And cement is a, is a significant part of, of international uh, carbon emissions. Yes. How is uh, California or anyone else going to get at those hard-to-get-at sectors?
3: I'm I'm really excited about cement because we actually have proven technology now on carbon sequestering cement, um, which is it's uh, if you sequester carbon in cement during the, the process of making it, it actually hardens more quickly. There's economic benefits to doing that from the cement buyer perspective. One of the things that we have is a lot of buying power because we're a very big state, and we're doing a couple projects that use an enormous amount of cement, and one of them is high-speed rail, and the other one is the Delta Tunnel. And so looking at those projects and our ability to do procurement as a driver for these industries is, is really exciting. There's a policy that was passed in the last administration called Buy Clean California that actually isn't uh, doesn't expand to cement yet but, but could um, that looks at some of the things we procure, like steel and glass, and says, we've got to do a life cycle accounting carbon of those things. I think our procurement power is under recognized and it's exciting. So I cement is exciting to me. Aviation actually SFO is doing a whole sustainable aviation fuel pilot because most some of the european airlines are pushing them to do it and there's a really interesting question of whether we can take some of the wood that we're getting out of the forest through our billion dollar plus forest management programs we're doing an enormous amount of clearing of of forest right now creating these slash piles that are on the side of the road what do you do with them Right. I mean, they're there. You actually end up having to burn them if you don't do something with them. And so can we do what Oregon's doing? Actually, this thing called Red Rock, it's a it's a facility up there. Can we actually convert some of that waste biomass coming out of the forest floor? Uh, these are not kind of trees being cut down. This is this is, um, uh, you know, boar beetle impacted uh, wood. And it's wood coming off the forest floor. It's the stuff we're raking, according to the president. Uh, can we use it? Can we use it and actually make aviation fuel? And I think that kind of stuff is super, super exciting. I mean, there are real technology advances. These are areas where I think technology is super exciting. I think we can do a lot.
1: Another Mm -hmm. uh, forest innovation, uh, cross-laminated timber. What is it? It makes buildings. It's it's fabulous. (laughs) It's It's good for earthquake performance, fire performance, (laughs) construction time, uh, and it could be a real way to to create markets to get fuel out of the forest.
3: Yeah, it's super exciting. I mean, it's uh, so cross-laminated timber is essentially a way of doing wood laminate that strengthens it uh, exponentially. And so you can do 12 to 14-story buildings out of wood with Um, with this stuff instead of building the amount of steel and concrete. So a big impact um, because the wood also can be waste wood, essentially um, non non uh, saleable timber. We can do all kinds of stuff with it. We're actually being beaten on this by some of our neighbors, Idaho and Oregon, both have cross-limited timber mills. It's an interesting thing when you think about like the whole just transition conversation, um, that we lost our timber industry for a variety of reasons, including globalization and, and um other things. Environmentalists. Environment yes, the, and the owls and um when we lost our timber industry, we we let a lot of our forest roads get grown over and we don't have a lot of mills anymore. And so unlike Idaho and Oregon, we can't ramp up really quickly on cross-limited timber um, or on any sustainable fuels. We have to think about how to reinvest in some of these communities, which were really decimated. um, And how do we sort of start thinking about a more sustainable approach to wood products in the state? It's It's a really big question, but it's critically important in the northern parts of the state. We've got some of the poorest counties in the state up north. And, um, you know, in some ways, it's what happens when you don't do a just transition plan uh, and you don't think ahead about an industry decline and, and what to replace it with. Um, we're kind of experiencing that
1: now. So, yeah. And the governors of Oregon and Washington are quite keen on, on they that. Are, we're going to go to our audience. we Welcome.
2: Hi. Um, hi. My name is Mary Kelly. Um, I was wondering what role does agriculture play in California's climate policies and how Calif- uh, California is addressing the huge environmental impact
0: of animal husbandry.
1: Thank you. Our, uh, sure. uh, malpractice on my part for not bringing up ag yet. Thank you. Great
0: Agriculture is a the soil is a big source of smog-forming emissions, which is is sort mm-hmm. of fascinating to think about how uh, managing the soil might also help reduce smog.
1: Yeah, and it can also sequester carbon store water, the whole healthy right.
3: soil, and also you're right and keep groundwater. There's a lot of of good research in California, in particular, that. Uh, healthy soil can actually keep groundwater um, uh, in the soil top layer soil so we can use it, reclaim it much more easily. So it's really important.
1: Next question. Welcome.
0: My name is Jörg Schleicher. I'm part of the climate branch of the European Institute of Innovation and Technology. Since Uber and Lyft is such a big problem, are there any public innovations for public transport to combat this? Is there something where the state is thinking about or uh, cities how to um, put a competition into the market which could do a better service.
1: I mean, one answer is, yeah. is bi- electric bikes and scooters, right? Yeah. The, you think of that really solves the first mile, last mile to yep. and from transit, as well as the short hops around town. I take the bike share all the time. E-bikes are sort of the first and last five mile, actually. The yeah. e-bikes, are, there's a lot of data that people are taking them
3: for much longer distances than they took the non-electric bikes. It's pretty, it's pretty cool, and they're actually... Um, coming into service in some rural areas too. one of the most exciting things to me that's happening in West Sacramento actually has done a pilot on this that's very cool is on-demand van pools so in more in less dense areas where you can't have a dedicated bus route where there's a lot of density you know you have everyone living here you have all the work here um, doing these on-demand shared vans which could ultimately be which should be electric and could ultimately be autonomous actually Um, that's replacing um, a bus service. West Sacramento just did a pilot where they took away their bus service in one area and replaced it with on-demand van pools, and they found transit ridership went up dramatically, particularly mm. among teenagers and people over 70, which is an interesting combination of people. Um, but, it, but because the wait times are much lower, right? If you have something on demand, you know when it's coming. You've got the app. It's less than a 10-minute yeah. wait usually. It's going from where you want to be, where you are to where you want to be. They, they're very, very successful in particularly sort of like. Less dense suburban and rural areas, we see them in agricultural areas. There's on-demand um, van pooling happening uh, for farm workers, for instance. So that I think is super cool and to me the most exciting application for AVs because these are less dense areas, there's less of a safety issue, and they're, um, very, it's a very, very clear need.
1: Kate Gordon, um, if someone doesn't live in California, why they, should they care about what we've been talking about today? You know, people who live in other states, why does California matter if you don't live in it?
3: <laughs> I mean, yeah, it it matters because we're the fifth largest economy in the world. If we were a country, we would be the fifth largest country in the world. It's big. Um, we are incredibly diverse. So I feel like we've been a leader on climate change. We've been incredibly aggressive and ambitious, and it's incredibly exciting. Now dealing with these hard issues, not only are we sort of Leading on trying to figure out how to deal with these hard issues. We have a lot of complexity in dealing with them We have an oil and gas sector, right? I mean we have a lot of building materials and concrete We've got these forest issues. We've got the fires. We've got all these impacts So we're grappling with a lot of issues in this microcosm of California that are issues happening all over the world And I think that we are leading on the hard stuff Um, And I think we can show the world how to do it if we get it right
1: We've been talking about California's climate progress with Kate Gordon, advisor to California Governor Gavin Newsom, Noel Perry, founder of Next10, publisher of the California Green Innovation Index, and Rachel Becker, environmental reporter with Cal Matters. To hear more Climate One conversations, subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your pods. Please help us get people talking more about climate by giving us a rating or review. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. Tyler Reed is our producer. Sarah Catherine Coxon is the strategy and content manager. The audio engineers are Mark Kirshner, Arnav Gupta, and Justin Norton. Devin Strolovich edited the program. Dr. Gloria Duffy is CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California, where our program originates. I'm Greg Dalton.